Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Good Life Radio Podcast. Monday, the 13th day of July, 2015. Another hot, sunny, beautiful day here in New York City. The phone number to call in, as always, 607-203-5330. I've spoken many times about my pilgrimage to Lexington in January of this year. I've talked about the private tours of Rupp Arena, me pathetically, and showing my singleness, kissing Rupp Arena's floor, uh, getting to meet my favorite player, Cameron Mills, sitting, sitting in Calipari's office, sitting in the locker room, showered with gifts from a piece of the 96 championship floor to ball signed by the entire team. Completely overwhelmed by my experience down there, but I never spoke about meeting tonight's guests a real-life American hero, and that's not even one bit of an understatement. If production was better, and I would pay a few dollars a month, and my radio was working, I'd be playing Hulk Hogan's theme song of I'm a Real American, would be ripping our shirts off, talking about tonight's guests. I would interview any member of the United States military. It's not really a secret, but it's my biggest regret that I never joined the military. It actually bothers me all the time that I never joined it. I'm such a proud supporter of the military, what they do, preserving our freedom. So I would interview everybody, but tonight's guest, his story is a little better than everybody else's, and because he's a Marine, he'll downplay it and say that it's not, but wait until you hear his story. An inspiration to anyone who's ever met him, if you read his story or anything, you're completely overwhelmed by him, the positive nature he brings, one of the coolest cats I've ever met, a good friend of mine, Marine, Corporal Matthew Bradford. Matthew, thank you for joining the show, my brother. What's up? Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to talk with you again. I haven't heard your voice in such a long time, but you, being a police officer in New York, you protect our homeland, and thank God I'm very blessed to call you a friend. You said we don't hear each other's voice. The only time we hear each other's voice is when we listen to Kentucky Sports Radio, and us two fanatics are calling in, (laughs) talking about high school prospects we need to sign. That's the only time we hear each other's voice. Yeah, that's uh, when was it like last week when you called in? Was the last time I heard your voice there? Of course, right after the draft. So here's what I want to do now. I want to talk first about your military life, then about Kentucky basketball and some of your personal life. Sound good? That works for me. All right. You joined the military, the Marines, right out of high school. Why? Yes. Uh, you know, I joined in 2005, but I pretty much decided after 9/11, you know, watching innocent Americans and the towers in New York City, you know, pretty much fall to the ground. I decided then that it was my time to join. So all I do is get through high school, and I signed the paperwork December of my senior year because I was already 18 years old, and nobody could tell me no then. And pretty much that gave me the date to go to Paris Island and to be a Marine. Now, you deployed to Iraq in 2006. We read books. Yeah. I watch. Yeah, I watch documentaries. We read books. We watch movies. First-hand experience. Describe what it's like when you land down there. The first, like, really, oh crap moment. And describe everything that's going on. And where were you stationed? I was. Uh, I was stationed with Second Battalion, Third Marines, out of Hawaii. We were sent to Haditha, right? Pretty much a year after I uh, went to boot camp. So it was training, training, then right over there. And honestly, the bus ride. And the plane ride over there, you're just thinking you're going to another training area. Since we were stationed in Hawaii, we had to train in California a lot of times. You didn't really expect it until you 
you got there, we were in Al-Assad, and one of the unit we were leaving told us that they felt they they felt sorry that we were, the mess that we were going to get into, and uh, you you really start to realize because they're they're coming out of the war, you know, they're coming out of the firefights that you're getting ready to enter. They lost a lot of casualties, and the first few months we were over there, we lost a lot. Um, you know, the you're, you kind of feel like you're invincible, and then that first gunshot comes at you, and you're like, you know, holy crap, these people are trying to kill me, you know? And it's, you realize then that it's not a video game. There's no pause or restart. It's, you know, they're they're, they're trying to kill you. So you got to do everything you've learned in training to, you know, when you go out with 12 guys, that you're going to return home with 12 guys. Now, describe me again. I'm, I'm listening. Like, uh, describe to me because I've watched documentaries. Just to everyone listening, the sleeping arrangements, the food. Your whole life is thrown upside down. This isn't staying in a hotel. Describe the weather there during the day, the night, where you slept, how you ate. Describe it to me. I want to get a first-hand experience we were, of that, what you experienced. We were stationed in Hawaii. I mean, we were stationed in Haditha, and uh, mm-hmm. our fall forward operating base, which was pretty much located right in the middle of town. So. We were living in Iraqi homes. There's about four or five good Iraqi homes that were kind of just spread out with our whole company of Marines. So we would, you know, as a town of about 100,000 that we would run patrols out of, two on uh, two two foot patrols that we would rotate back and forth between post and patrol. We had one platoon that was uh, set on mobile vehicles and then one platoon that was set with working with the Iraqi police slash army. Um, you know, we would, it was definitely, I mean, you're like in a third world country, you definitely, you know, a lot of Americans take for granted the bad things that we have over here. But I, I think after witnessing that, I would live in a, a homeless environment, homeless area over here than I would live in Iraq again. It's just, it's dirty, you know, it, it smells, mm-hmm. you can't drink the water there. And, it, you know, our day to day was, you know, we were infantrymen, so we were, going out on patrols, trying to find IDs. Um, we had a lot of snipers in the area. Uh, when we first got there, our mobile unit got hit so hard that they ended up having to change the platoons because our mobile unit lost some guys when we first got there. I actually felt safer walking the streets than I did riding in vehicles. Oh, God, that's insane. Now, the people there, the, now where you were stationed, were there any civilians there? It was all United States military and basically the enemies. Is that all it was, or were there normal people living there? There was normal people there. It was uh, it was a basic, you know, it was like a farming town right there on Euphrates River, and in mm-hmm. Haditha it has the second largest stand in Iraq. So, you know, we had a lot of foreign military people that would kind of hang out around the dam to, you know, kind of just, you know, like it's your, basically your military base. But And at the beginning of when we first got there, that's where our battalion commander and all our um, battalion officers stayed at the dam and we stayed out in town and uh, you know each battalion has three three companies of you know infantry guys and then a company mm-hmm. of weapons and we were spread out through different AOs ours being Haditha was the largest one and just south of us was another company in Halkania and across the river was Barwana but uh you know it's you know right there along the river they have the little section called the palm groves and that's where a lot of the farming and the vegetation has grown but it was mostly it was it was just Marines. There was the only army unit there was pretty much they did Cyclops. Um so they were out there trying to trying to jinx the, the terrorists to come out and you know, put their arms up. 
Now, I'm going to tell you the date. Obviously, you know the date. You're in Iraq for almost a year. January 18, 2007, your life changes forever. Forever, you, the unspeakable happens. Can you take me through what happened that day? And you heard, like, when I started the show, I didn't say anything that happened to you. So if you don't mind, because your story is insane. Oh, if you don't mind oh. yeah, describing what happened on January 18, 2007, what were you doing, and just taking up to the moment. Well, you know, that day, it, it, was a, it was actually a beautiful day in Iraq, too, but it was, uh, <laughs> we, you know, we, we got the brief. You know, actually, we got the, we actually had got the satellite phone that day, so we were calling home, and then they come to us and was like, you know, we got to go to a briefing because we're going to go on patrol. And it was just basically a, a routine IED patrol, just, you know, check. It was down by the river. Um, there's a street called Park Place, which laid uh, parallel to the Euphrates River. And I was walking point just like I had the whole time I was in Iraq. And, you know, I, we were walking up past the compound wall, and there was an opening inside the palm groves, which a bunch of palm trees. And I look out in front of me about 30 feet off my right, and it's a white bag laying up against a tree. And to me, that looks suspicious. So I turn around mm-hmm. and saw my team leader to my left and squad leader behind us. And the minute I turn back around, there's a ditch that was uh, ran right next to the compound wall into a pipe underneath the road that I happened to be standing on. And as I look down, I see the wires going into the pipe. And um, at that moment, it just sounded like a thousand gunshots going off. It sent shrapnel to my eyes right away, blinding me. And, um, you know, it, it, it took off my left leg at the scene of the blast above the knee. And, you know, I laid there conscious, you know, hearing everything going on around me and stuff like that. And then, you know, they they, they they got QRF, their quick reaction force, and got me out and they put me in a Humvee. And the interesting thing is my senior drill instructor, who I never thought I'd ever run into, was a platoon sergeant with 3rd platoon in our same company. And he was in charge of QRF that day, and his voice was the last voice I heard saying, Bradford, you'll be fine. That blast left me into a, in a heavily sedated coma for three weeks. You know, when I woke up, I, you know, lost both my legs, one below, one above. Shrapnel took the vision. I had damage to my right hand and into my intestines where a piece of my small intestines had to be removed. Um, you know, and just waking up, realizing that I'm in the United States and my friends are still in Iraq, that, that killed me for the longest time with guilt and depression and stuff like that, and I didn't want to live. You know, I mm-hmm. figured that if I was going to get hurt in Iraq, I'd really think I wanted, I'd, you know, I'm either going to walk off the plane with my buddies after we, you know, did the deployment or I was going to come home in a casket. And that's the way I viewed it. I wanted to, if I was going to go all out, you know, I was going to go all out. And, you know, I wouldn't eat anything when I was in the hospital, so I was extremely skinny, so weak. I couldn't even lift, really lift my body up off the bed. Um, and it killed me when they told me I lost my legs. I didn't care anything about the vision. It was the legs that, you know, I wanted to grow back. Um, yeah, was, uh, we're going to get, you know, we're gonna get always, you. Oh, yeah, thank you. It's like, you know, I always, always look at the bright thing about it. You know, if I didn't look down, then it would probably, you know, pretty much went through my throat or cut my head off. So it's I always look at the brighter side of it. That's, uh, I never, I knew your story from reading about you, meaning you, but I never heard you tell it. That's intense. Now, so the IED goes off. You're blinded instantly. You lose your leg instantly. You're saying your conscience. This is going to sound, hopefully I don't sound like, I, I don't know disrespected what are you thinking now you can't see you don't know you're missing a leg what's going through your mind right at that point you think you do you think you're dead it was a you know it was kind of like a dream almost i mean well, a nightmare i guess but you know to hear like my squad leader right above me and you know the guys that were rushing to you know put tourniquets on my legs and that whole time i was trying to get up because i you know i was in shock 
So I was trying to get up and, you know, I actually had the litter kit in my backpack. So they had to get that out of there to put me on it. And the whole time they carried me, they was, you know, I was still trying to get up. My right leg below the knee was severely damaged. But, you know, later on I had to amputate it off. But my left leg was, you know, from the scene of the blast. And even my corpsman told me a couple of years later that he was surprised that it wasn't as high as it should have been or he thought it would have been because, I mean, it was basically sewn back together. But, you know, my friend told me when, you know, they were waiting on DRF to get there that he was just like sitting there holding my hand trying to talk to me because, you know, you know, the one unique thing about the Marine Corps that we all love is the brotherhood and the camaraderie. And that's, especially when you're deployed or you, you spend so many times, so many months and days training with these guys, these same guys that, you know, we're all brothers and, you know, so it's, they didn't know if they would ever see their brother again. And, you know, him sitting there holding my hand means a lot. And it's interesting because one of the Marines from QRF did a fishing trip out in Montana that I usually go to. I got good friends out there. I go fly fishing. And he was with my guide, and my guide mentioned my name. And he actually thought that I, I didn't make it. He thought I died that day. So ah. just, hearing, just hearing that, it's like, you know, it, it, it was... As severe as you can get it. Now, during that blast, did anyone else get injured in your whole team or just you? Well, my team leader got hurt to my left. He had shrapnel in his right calf um, okay. below the knee, so he pretty much for the longest time he had dropped foot where he couldn't, he wasn't even able to run. Um, they actually, you know, there's a big, they put him in the same Humvee with me, and, you know, he actually could see what was what happened to me and it, it kind of killed him. And even after I got hurt, when I found out that he got hurt, you know, he, they would all try to call me and stuff and I wouldn't want to talk to him because I felt like I let them down. And, oh, you know, God. especially getting, so that, that kind of, it took me a long time to kind of talk to him. And it's, you know, now it's like where I've kind of overcome a lot of it. It's still a lot of my good friends there. It's, it's hard to talk with them about that day because I feel like they get more upset about it than I do. <laughs> no. Corporal Bradford, in 2010, everyone just heard the story of what happened to you. You do the unspeakable, probably the most manliest act. Any person who's listening now is going to feel like less of a man because what you did, you re-enlisted after losing both your legs and going blind. You re-enlisted. And if I'm correct, didn't you go back to Iraq to see everybody, to meet everybody? I, I did. You know, um, in 2007, what helped me get through the depression, the guilt, there was a Marine there that was assigned to the uh, detachment in Bethesda, and he come in there and he talked to me day in and day out about everything other than my injuries. And it really helped me overcome it and kind of look life in a different way where, you know, now I'm, at one moment I'm thinking that I just want to die. I don't want to live here no more. To the, you know, the next is I'm realizing that I'm only 20 years old and I got a long life ahead of me. And from that time on, that's when I realized that I wanted to stay in the Marine Corps and help out other wounded warriors that are dealing with the same problems that I have. So I went did everything I possibly could, six months at the blind center, learning everything I need to do from computers to independent mobility to even learn Braille. Um, you know, and just, and the Marine Corps saw that, and then they also saw that I had a positive attitude. You know, I did the Marine Corps thing, you know, lead by example. And I didn't quit because I felt like if I quit, I quit on my brothers. I quit on the Marine mm-hmm. Corps, and Marines don't, Marines don't surrender, and they don't quit. And, um, so, you know, I, I kept on fighting because I had one thing in mind, and that was to re-enlist, and I knew it was a hard thing because it's never been done by anybody with vision loss and amputations. Um, so, you know, I put, you know, once I did March of 2000, 
2009, I did the Baton Death March. I walked 10 miles out of 15. I told my therapist, I was like, when I complete this, I'm going back. I'm putting my med boards because I'm done with therapy. And I figured two years of therapy, you know, now I'm out here walking 10 miles. I was like, all right, I'm done. So I did that and, you know, I put my re-enlistment package in. And, you know, by April of uh, 2010 come around, they got approved. They say, it's funny because the assistant commandant actually come down to San Antonio to visit the Wounded Warriors, and he looked at me and was like, Corporal Bradford, have you heard anything about your re-enlistment package? And I was like, last I heard it was on the commandant's desk. And by that Monday morning, they gave me a call and said it had been approved to re-enlist and become the first blind double amputee team in the history of the Marine Corps. And um, they sent me to Wounded Warrior East Battalion, uh, Wounded Warrior East Battalion, Wounded Warrior Battalion East Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, which is exactly what I wanted to do. And then, um, you know, trip you're talking about 2011, I got the opportunity to go back through Operation Proper Exit to, you know, go back to Iraq and actually walk away from that country since I didn't get to do it the first time. And, um, you know, going back over there, I, went, I took an American flag that was with me, a bracelet from a friend that got killed in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I got to enjoy it. They, they let me fly the American flag on one of their flagpoles and, it was such a calm day, but it was, you could, once they got to the top, you can hear just whipping in the wind. Um, and, you know, that's when I realized that it was, you know, what I joined the Marine Corps to do, I can't do it no more. And, um, you know, the, the Lord kept me alive to share my story and to inspire others, and I don't need to wear a uniform to do that. And, you know, to cap off this wonderful trip back to Iraq, once-in-a-lifetime trip, we were flying over Iceland, and the pilot gets this little letter printed off, and they bring it back to us, and it says, U.S. forces have killed Osama bin Laden. And, but, now, now that's that's closure there because he's the reason why we all joined the military because what he did to us on that September day, and you know from that moment on that from when they gave us that letter, me and my friend we toasted to uh, we had two glasses, and all they said on the glasses was united, and that's uh, that's the perfect word for the perfect moment. And, you know, we just wanted to get home and be with our families then because, you know, mission accomplished. Oof. I probably talk more than any human being alive. I forget I'm doing an interview. I kind of want to just sit down and just listen to you talk, telling these stories. Um, I want to get on a more lighter note. So, first of all, on Twitter, everyone has to follow you. It's Bionic Matt. It's going to be at B-I-O-N-I-K-M-A-T-T-5. And the reason I find your Twitter feed fascinating is the other day you're golfing, you're in a race, you have to explain to me, how are you golfing? Like, how are you golfing? How are you doing these races? You have to explain to me, you're blind. You're doing all these things. Your life doesn't, you know, listen, obviously you're overcoming every obstacle anyone's putting your way, but you're golfing. How is this happening? Golf is actually the easy thing because, you know, they, I do a couple of practice swings. They put the golf ball down, and uh, they line my club up, so I make sure I hit it just right. And, and you know, I've done it the last two summers, and I've, I've fallen in love with it because that's the first time I've ever played golf before. And last year, the lady told me, and I was like, you, just hit the, you keep hitting the ball straight, you're bound to get on the greens. And I can hit the ball about, about 150 to 175 on a good swing. And at first, I would take the golf cart and kind of line it up behind me where I kind of, just to know that it's there, I put my butt up on it a little bit. Okay. I'd kind of get my balance together, but you know, this last time we played golf last month in Chicago, it was so wet that a lot of the holes I couldn't use the golf cart, so I didn't I wouldn't damage the the course. 
And, um, and you know, without the golf cart, I seemed like I swung the ball, swung the club a lot better and hit the ball a lot further. You know, the racing, the hand cycles, I've done four Marine Corps marathons and three half marathons. And actually, in 2009, I, I participated in the Tunnel of the Towers in New York City. Of course. Um, I just, uh, you know, I, I do it all on my own. I got a guy that rides right next to me, and he will kind of give me cadence, left, right, left, right, and... It's just that's something I enjoy doing because it's actually just, it's just me and the hand cycle. You know, I'm listening to his directions, but it's just me and the hand cycle. You know, when you get down a big hill and you just got the wind in your face, you know, and then it's like you you hit that last turn and you're getting ready to go across that finish here, finish line there. It's like it's just accomplishment because it it, it makes it it shows me that even with no legs and no vision, I could still go out and do these things. And then you know, I definitely don't let my injuries be a weakness of mine. You know. If it's out there, I'm going to do it. If I'm, if it's going to be difficult, I'm going to try to do it any way I possibly can. And that's just kind of the mindset that I've had since I got hurt, and I realized that I was only 20 years old. You know, life's a life's a bucket list, and I'm going to check off everything I can. You mentioned a few times about being positive. Obviously, you went through some depression. It's so easy for people like myself. I'm going to be, I'll be critical of myself. I love posting a positive tweet, uh, a positive quote on Twitter. Life is this, 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 this. It's easy to copy and paste a positive quote, screenshot a picture of, of a cool poster and put it on book and Instagram. How truly do you live your life with such a positive outlook? It, you know, some, one little thing can happen. It shatter, you know, people, I love the quote. How ironic. I love the quote, don't let a bad day make you think you have a bad life. Mm-hmm. Yet you, you've had some of the worst things that can ever happen to anybody. How, how do you remain so positive all the time? I realized that day in Iraq that, you know, you don't know what that next step is going to take or what's going to happen when you take that next step. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like I, I live that day now because you never know where that next step's going to go. You know, you don't know if you're actually going to be here tomorrow. So you want to live the, you live that day to the fullest, you know, and live in the moment, not in the future or the past. And, you know, what happened in the past happened in the past, but it also that day took me down a rough detour, you know, many ups and downs, highs and lows, but it, it led me to who I am today. And, you know, I've met people in the past that have been instrumental in my recovery. Um, I was very blessed to be in, do my rehab in San Antonio at the burn center because it made me realize that there are, there are individuals that have it worse than I do. And, you know, one of for for example, one of the guys, he was in the army and he was burned probably about 60%, 70% of his body. And we went to lunch, and he his fingers were burned so bad he couldn't even open his drink. And he looked at me and said that he would he'd much rather be blind or much rather be burned than blind. And I realized it's like, and this guy was the biggest joker. And you know, if 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 he he would come into therapy and joke on you, if he didn't joke on him back, he'd go on, go to you harder. And I realized it's like you know he's going to be in and out of surgeries for like you know basically the rest of his life doing skin grafts. What what do I got to complain about? You know. I, I got my prosthetics. You know, my eyes are feeling good right now. You know, what do I got to complain about, you know? So just people like him have been, you know, instrumental. They've been role models of mine. And, you know, every time I get down or I get depressed and, you know, I just have one of the moments, I, you know, I, I got a beautiful life. I got a beautiful family. You know, it's that's that's all I need right there. And, you know, it's it's. I am who I am within their eyes, and it's what it's their opinions is what matters to me. 
Now, uh, we'll get back to your personal life. You and I share the love of this country and the love of Kentucky basketball. We both know the obsession we both have over it. Are you over the Wisconsin, are you over the Wisconsin loss yet in the final four this year? Are you over it yet or not yet? I, I, I am. I was, I was disappointed that we lost, but it was. I mean, we thirty-eight and one was a pretty good run, and you know we just kind of we got faced with a team that gave us the biggest challenge in that tournament. Mm-hmm. And I like I argue with people, and I still think if we would have played Duke in the final, I think we could have beat Duke. I just no, think no. Wisconsin gave us the biggest challenge because of you know the way their bigs could move out to the three-point line. That took away our shot blockers. And, um, I, and we're gonna. Uh, so many people, I you know, I, I texted every person I work with, everyone. So many military guys. Everyone's gonna be bored now. We're just gonna do a few minutes on Kentucky talk. When the bracket came out, I said the one team, the only team I didn't want to play was Wisconsin. It was it. When the, the bracket came out, we can embarrass. We embarrassed West Virginia. We we hung on with Notre Dame. The only team I was truly scared about was Wisconsin. Now, Matt, let me ask you a question. You being a diehard fan, I, I, I was at the NBA draft, of course, and I was not not arguing, but a, a discussions over just Kentucky losses. Which loss is worse for you this year, being 38-0, losing to Wisconsin, or, well, I guess two years ago now, losing to UConn in the finals? Which loss hurt more? Yeah, uh, you talk about UConn after the, the amazing run we did? Mm-hmm. I, I think the Wisconsin yeah. one, because yeah. that, that UConn game, that was just, it was amazing that we were even there. I mean, we went through Wichita State, Louisville was good, Michigan, then, you know, Wisconsin went three buzzer beaters, three big-time shots. And I think the Wisconsin one hurt the most, and it's that was probably one of the roughest losses that I've probably experienced for a long time because I was only six years old when Duke, you know, Leitner shot in 92. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, the probably the Wisconsin one for sure. You know what I love? I love that. Everyone bases their UK fandom on the Leitner game because you're saying you were six. I, I love you talking about like oh, I was 11 at that time. Like everyone tells the age when they had their heart yeah. broken for the first time. Like I, I had my, my listen. My wife left me. I had girlfriends break up with me. Yet I'm like, oh, my heart was broken when Leitner hit the shot. Now, you know what? This year's team. Here's what I'm excited about. One, we have a great team. I'm excited. We don't have these unrealistic expectations again of. 40 no, it's every year. I like that we have mm-hmm. Poitras, Ulysses, Marcus Lee is the key, Willis. We got some of these big freshmen. Are you – see, everyone's like, oh, when are you going to go over the Wisconsin loss? I feel once we win another title under Calipari, which is going to happen next year. We got Jamal Murray. We got Skull. Mm-hmm. We got Briscoe. Once we win the next title, I feel I'll be over the these heartbreaking losses. You agree with me? I do, and uh, you know, I think this year, because you know, it's, if we would have had last year's team going into this year's uh, run, I mean, we mm-hmm. would dominate everybody because college basketball is falling off. Last year is Duke, Wisconsin, Kentucky. Now it's kind of like an open field, and I think with us getting Jamal Murray, I think we're going to be very good. I think you know they were talking about comparing this year's team to the Brandon Knight team, where it took them a little bit to jail, but once they jailed, they they you know they went straight forward there, and I. I just think, you know, it's going to be – not we don't have that much size, but we're going to be athletic and we're going to be up and down that court. And I could see Ulyss and Portress having a huge year just because, you know, Portress, he plays better when he's at the four. I'm sure you're excited with uh, Isaiah Briscoe, New York kid. Of course. 
Of course, I've been following yeah. the name of Kid Gilchrist. When Kid Gilchrist, he was from Jersey, and even uh, Carlton Towns. I watched him play one time when he was in Jersey. Now, let me ask you a question, because up here it doesn't get the, I guess, media attention. And I know it boring people with Kentucky basketball, so I don't care. When up here you get a little blurb in the paper about Calipari, every other day there's Calipari's going to go to the Pelicans. He's going to the Kings. What's the pulse down there? Do you think Calipari's staying there for the long haul? Or do you think it's one more title? He set us up with all the new facilities, this, that, the recruiting. Do you think one more title he leaves? Or do you think he's a lifer? Do you think he's going to be there for a long, long time? Uh, honestly, I, it's funny because every time they, they come up with these like NBA rumors, you know, Cal is like within the hour on Twitter is like, the, you know, I'm not going there. I'm not interested. This is my job. You know, I've waited 20 years for this job. I, I think – I think he's going to stay here. I just I think he likes it here too much. He he's always talking about his his joy is to get you know high school kids to live their dream of being an NBA. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I still I mean it, it's got to be tough on college coaches who are dominant in college and try to go to the NBA because they can't talk to an NBA player that makes more money than them or you know they're not going to listen in NBA and I, I just think Cal is I think he's here. I mean he's got the best job. I mean. They're pretty much paying here at Kentucky more than they might in, in you know, they might NBA teams. But, you know, he had the, the nice Cavaliers offer last year, and, you know, LeBron wasn't there yet, but I'm pretty sure everybody thought LeBron would be You know, and it's and he passed up, you know, the Pelicans with Anthony Davis, you know, uh, the Kings, the Marcus Cousins, which I don't even know if he passed that up too much because George Carl's still there. You know, it's kind of yeah. interesting that they're trying, talking about getting a new coach and George Carl's still there. And, I mean, I just, how do you think George Carl? He, he's, he's probably like a Hall of Fame coach, too. Yeah, he has an issue, though, with star plays. Let me ask you this. Who's your all-time favorite player? Uh, you know, Kentucky. You know, I really enjoy a lot of players here with Cal. You know, I like uh, Keith Bogans. Tayshawn Prince, 2003 was my favorite team. That was actually the the first year I moved to Virginia. So I okay. I had to live with these Virginia fans as being a Kentucky fan, and it's interesting because before Kentucky lost to Marquette in Elite Eight, the last team they lost to was UVA, Virginia. So I had to deal with that. But uh, you know, I'd probably keep Bogans, Tayshawn Prince. I like uh, you know, I like Cliff Hawkins. Um, mm-hmm. Through Calipari's years. I always, separate my uh everyone asks me a question it's like the pre-cal era and the post-cal that's how i really like the cal perry era and before cal like bc basically um it's funny you mentioned those three my best friend in the world went to university of virginia still lives down there he's a duke fan and a virginia fan he just picks any team that's halfway good and he's listening justin walker and when, when they beat kentucky it was he roots he'd rather kentucky lose and his teams win. So he's, mm-hmm. he's horrendous. Hey, let me ask you a question. We met on BC's favorite player was Cameron Mills. Um, that 98 team. Like, well, the 96 team is when I, you know, I fell in love. I slept outside when they played, uh, um, when they played the first, when they played the UMass game, ironically, coaching mm-hmm. against Al Perry. That was the first Kentucky game I saw live. I, I slept, my mom let me sleep outside. She sat in the car while I slept outside. Thinking, Cameron Mills is my favorite player. I got to meet him. How did you get involved with Cameron Mills? Because I met you on his show. You were on his show numerous times. How did you get involved with Cameron Mills? Um, I, there was a Cameron and I have a mutual friend, Tommy Baker, and he he does his he does like a home improvement radio show. But he also every Thanksgiving he'll get together in a little town called Wilmore, 
and he'll mm-hmm. serve breakfast to the city officials. And Cameron Mills uh, participated two years ago, which was my first time participating. So I got to meet Cameron there, and uh, he, you know, he sat down and we kind of, I told him, you know, he asked me a little bit about what happened and stuff, and then he was like, you know, I need, I want to get you on my show. So mm-hmm. that was kind of, it was, it was before the show. It was, it was a show on WLAP at the time, but we just kind of, we didn't really. I didn't get on a show until like I think it was in May, around May for the first time. And um, we was kind of kept him forth through Twitter, through text, and he he offered. He was like, you know, he realized that's what I wanted to do once I get through with school. And he was, you know, anytime you're available and you want to do it, just send me a text. I'll come pick you up. We can do the radio show. And that's helped out a lot talking on the radio. You know, who'd have thought that you'd be nervous on the radio? But when you got you know, when the lights are on and the mic's in front of you, everything you say is recorded and um, you know, I went from then not talking very much to kind of jumping in, and it's just the you know who I am. I'm not a big person that likes to interrupt. And he told me he's like, if you don't want, if you don't interrupt, then you're never going to talk on the radio. <laughs> so that kind of I, I started interrupting him. I was like, and it kind of you know made me weird, you know. So I was like, oh, I'm sitting here interrupting Cameron Mills, you know. And it's but it's funny because the way you're talking about sleeping outside. I when I lived in Texas and we had XM radio. And the only way I could listen to Kentucky games is go sit in the car for two hours, turn the XM on. You know, it's like sit on the parking lot, just listen to a Kentucky basketball game. Mm-hmm. I, I'll tell you now, thank God with the iPhones and everything, when uh, when Kentucky, I'll say, when I think I say it on Twitter enough, when Kentucky loses, listen, my heart breaks. I'm, the reason I'm single, a big reason I'm single is because Kentucky basketball. <laughs> I go for these walks and I sit by myself in Central Park and I have hunt. Matt Jones, I'm listening to Kentucky Sports Radio. That's my only outlet. When they lose, there's, there's no Kentucky fans up here. You know, there's, there's nothing to do with me. Let me ask you one, one other thing, cause, and then we're going to have a few other questions. You were introduced at Rupp Arena. Describe that feeling walking on the court of Rupp Arena with Big Blue Nation erupting, going crazy for you. Can you describe that for me? Oh, were you talking about this year? Yeah, um, when you were introduced on it, the first time you got introduced at Rupp. I know it was in 2013. They brought me out on the court, and it was it was it was, it was interesting because they told me before the game, and I just thought they were joking because they laughed right as they said it. And I was like, oh, you know. So we go sit down, and then like it was like four minutes to go, and he was like, um, all right, we got the two minute one, two minutes, you know, two minutes to go, and we're gonna bring you out. And it's like, and he, he looked at my wife and was like, you want to go out with him? And she was like, no. <laughs> and they they brought me out, and they they introduced me. And, you know, I go to put my hand down and reach for the, the gentleman's shoulder, and they got it seemed like the ovation got louder than it was the first time. And I was like, oh, boy. I mean, it's just amazing being on that court. I mean, you just think of the, think of the millionaires that's played on that court, you know, the history of that court. And then this year, 2000, you know, 2015, the, the Missouri game when they were playing Rupp Arena, they brought me out because they, they wanted me to speak to the veteran, you know, give a shout out to the veterans. And the whole plan was for Ryan Lemon to bring me out and introduce me quickly and then give me the mic so I can, you know, give a good shout out to the veterans before the ovation gets too loud. But right when he introduced me, that it just erupted in there. First of all, the Tuesday night ESPN game. And it got so loud in there. And I made a quote when WKYT, the news, the local news station did it here, and I was like, I was more frightened <laughs> on the floor of Rupp Arena than I was in a firefight in Iraq. 
And it's like, you know, like they were so loud and I didn't know what to do. And I tried to look for Ryan's shoulder and I couldn't find his shoulder. And I was like, gosh, they just leave me out here. And, uh, but it was, uh, it was amazing. You know, that night I got to meet, I got a chance to meet Dick Vitale. And that was, I mean, that's like a, a sports iconic hero right there. And then, mm-hmm. of course, Kentucky won by like 40 points that day. That was a, mm-hmm. it was a very good night. And it was, and you know, one of the players you're talking about, fair players, I got to meet him twice was Terrence Jones. He was there and, um, very nice kid, very nice, and it, it kind of makes me feel old calm people kids, but, you know, he sat there and talked with me a lot on the floor at Rupp Arena, we just kind of, kind of, we, we kind of walked around, they let us just walk around after the game, and just, just being on that court, I mean, it's just, it's an iconic court. This year, when I went down there the first time, uh, they set it up, I had a private tour of Rupp, and I tweeted the picture and everything, I was on Rupp Arena, I was on the floor by myself. For probably around a minute or two, the arena was empty. Like, I almost broke down in tears. My my friend Eddie Pele, he was on the radio with us, he videotaped me. I, I was completely overwhelmed. I go down on both knees, and I just kiss the floor. It was like I put the picture up, and people were like, hashtag, this is why you're single. But it's, it was one of the most overwhelming, probably one of the top ten best moments of my entire life. It's It was just mm-hmm. for you to be cheered by Big Blue Nation. Now, let me ask you a question here. I go on your Twitter, which I keep mentioning, absolutely beautiful daughter and beautiful wife. How did you meet your be- – I'm single here in New York. So how are you meeting your beautiful girls? And when did you meet your wife? When did you guys get married? Because she's – Amanda, her name is, right? Amanda, yes. I, I, was, a, yeah. I was extremely blessed. <laughs> but uh, actually, the, after I re-enlisted in San Antonio, I, had the, I, was, I was stationed in North Carolina. And the first weekend I moved to North Carolina, we went on a kayaking trip. And she worked for a nonprofit. So we were just kind of, you know, we, we started hanging out. we become really good friends. And then and just, you know, basically a year from the date that I moved to North Carolina, I, we went to Myrtle Beach and I proposed to her there on the Skywheel. And uh, Layla, my daughter, was born February 27, 2000 and, um, 2012. So she's just over three years old. Amanda and I ended up getting married April seventh, two thousand twelve, the same day that I actually reenlisted two years earlier. So wow. we're, um, you know, she's a she's a she's a beautiful lady. She's very very wonderful. I love her to death. Um, I got two set kids, uh, twelve and nine, boy and girl, mm-hmm. and then of course Layla's three and a half, and that's it's, it's my life. Uh, You're yeah. a lucky lucky man. Now, a few other questions. Thank I just you. actually read this right before you came on. Are uh, the program helping hero? It helped build you a house, and it has some of the coolest amenity, amenities I've ever heard of. Can you tell me about some of them? Because I was overwhelmed how cool some of this stuff was. Yeah, yeah. They built um, 2013. They built a house uh, for us. To, uh, actually, here in a couple of weeks would be two years exactly. But it's you know it's set up for my uh, my injuries, the vision, you know, the speakers, and everything set up. It's a, it's full. It's handicap accessible. You know, I can. You know, there's no frustrations in getting from room to room. Um, it's all open. Uh, ADL, like even going out in the backyard. I mean, it's all accessible for me to get around. It's, so it's uh, it's wonderful. You know, we the speaker system is wonderful to go. You know, you don't have to worry about a remote in case it's you know can't find the remote. Just go <laughs> flip the switch because it's like little keypads. We'll have to we'll have to get you down here and, and come over and we'll have a little party, a little Kentucky game party. <laughs> well, well, listen, the, that, the that's the thing. Work. That's what I'm telling you. 
I keep I've been texting with Cameron and stuff. I'm gonna come, I was gonna come down there for the All Star game and ship to Cincinnati. I'm gonna try to come down there probably sometime in August. I'm I'm gonna come down there for a few days. Um, all right, couple couple questions. Every person that comes on my show, I ask them the same question. Me and you were out. We're hanging out. Who's the coolest? Per- you met a lot of people. Who's the coolest person in your phone? You have their phone number. I'm always impressed by this answer. Well, I don't. I don't really technically have his number, but I got his people's number, and it's uh, Toby Keith. Uh, Who do you have? I, oh yeah, that's a great picture of you, and Toby Keith. Yeah, I met I met him in 2011 on my trip to Iraq, and we kind of kept in touch. And if you YouTube it, uh, in 2011, about two months after I first met him, we mm-hmm. he brought me out on stage in Virginia Beach, and Amanda and I just found out that we're having Layla but we haven't told anybody and he lets everybody in Virginia beach and YouTube world know that we're having a kid. And from, from, from then till now, every concert I go to, he, you know, he invites me up on stage. You know, I've been part of a USO commercial with him. Um, but, and then also, you know, I'm good friends with his booking guy and his manager's assistant. So that, you know, I'm pretty close with all of them just through like Facebook and Twitter and stuff. And keep touch through text. Um, just a few, about a month ago, he was inducted into the songwriters hall of fame and his manager emailed me and was like, you know, we're, we're trying to get video of Toby's friends to, you know, show him the night that he gets this, you know, prestigious award. Would you be, would you be all right doing that? And so we sing a video and it's like, just that email right there means that oh, maybe, maybe I'm in on this friendship here, but, but he's probably got to be like the coolest guy that I have on my phone. Yeah, I, I would, I would think so. You know, you know what? A lot of people have the cool guy in their phone, but they can never. If they t- listen, I always tell the same story. I have Scott Boris's phone number. He he has no idea who I am. He's never texted me ever. If I text him, he he probably block me. But a buddy of mine played minor league baseball. Met Scott. I stole his phone number. So I always tell my Scott Boris, coolest cat in my phone. Now listen, before we finish up. You mentioned how much you love Kentucky basketball. Obviously, you love the University of Kentucky. I, I don't want to describe. Describe to me, because when I met you, I was overwhelmed by, describe your legs and eyes and your Kentucky, how much you believe Kentucky blew for everybody. Because I think this is unbelievable. Well, my my left eye, which is a prosthetic eye, is a UK eye. Um, <laughs> I got that done last year, which I, I had it. Like, when I first got my prosthetic eye, like, the lady told me that if the design looks good, when they minimize it, they could put it on the eye. And I was like, oh, well, you know, give me some play eyes. So, at that time, I had a Ben Monument across here. I had an EGA, Eagle Glow Banker, and then I had a UK one. And then I just got this new UK a couple of years ago. And the funny thing is, the, the day they let me bring it home, Kentucky got beat by Arkansas in overtime. And I was like, maybe this eye ain't a good one, you know. And then... And then of course when when I met you, I I think it was in February. Oh like, yeah, January thirty first. I think it was January thirtieth. I met you. Because I just got I just got two new legs in the middle of March. My left one above the knee, which is like kind of like a UK uh, military camouflage, and then my right leg. It's it's basically it's different than what it was because they have a sock that covers up the sleeve, but it's a blue with with a white UK right on the front of it. So I'm pretty much a walking billboard for the University of Kentucky. And I'm, I'm very proud of it, too. So. Wouldn't we all be? Now, listen, before I let you go, a couple things. First, I'm going to send you all that stuff I told you I was going to send you, the shirts and everything. I have all that stuff. I'm going to send it out tomorrow. Um, Thank you very much. Of course. I made a little list of everything I want to make sure I hit up with you. Obviously, I'm going to hang out with you when I get down there. That's actually a given. Are you going to come up here 
this year in Brooklyn, Kentucky's playing Ohio State at the Barclays. Any shot you come up here? Probably not. It's uh, it's tough with school because I'll be in school then. But uh, I definitely I want to get back up there and do the uh, Tunnel of Towers race. I did it in 2009, and that was actually the first hand cycle race that I did. And I had, it was kind of it was a little difficult for me since that was the first one, but that's mm-hmm. one of my goals to get back up there and do that race. And, um, and you know, I got, you know, now, you know, of course, our friendship, but I also got some good friends that were with the fire department there, too, that keep uh-huh. on trying to get me to come back up there. So um, my wife and I will probably venture up there sooner than later. And she's from Rhode Island, too, so if we ever drive, we kind of go right through that area. And, you know, the irony of that situation is uh, growing up, I grew up, I went to an all-boy Catholic high school. And one of my closest friends down there was Greg Siller, and that was actually his uncle. The Tunnel Towers is because of my, one of my best friend's uncle. So I really hope you come up from that. Now, listen, last thing, because obviously we're both avid readers. Only give me one. I just finished a book today. Give me a recommendation on a book, non-military book. Non-military book? Do you only read military? Oh, gosh, pretty much. Uh, actually, I just finished a book that uh, Matt Jones from KSR mentioned, uh, Redeployment which is it gives you about 13 stories of, of different um, kind of like, you know, uh, service members that deployed and their feelings and what they went through when they returned home. And that right there is a book that I would probably put in my top five, you know, because that's a book that I'll probably read again and again. And, you know, you know what? Basically, that's a good enough recommendation for me. I'll start that out. Listen to me. I appreciate it. First of all, your service, you give me some of your time. I'm really honored to call you a friend, and I can't thank you enough. I was having a difficult time doing the interview. I didn't even want to talk. I just wanted to sit down, have some popcorn, and listen because your inspiration is just through the roof, man. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on my show, and thank you for being a friend. I can't wait when I get down there. Hey, thank you very much for having me, and uh, anytime you want me, I, I'd love to come call, give you a call, and we do another podcast anytime you want to, and uh, especially during basketball season. I really enjoy course, this man. and you know, enjoy our friendship and getting to know you. My brother, thank you so much, man. Thank you. Hey, thank you. See you later, Matt. Corporal Matthew Bradford. I I'm fortunate enough to do a lot of a lot of shows. And all my shows are based around sports. I had a couple of guests from Locked Up Abroad, a couple of authors. When I met Matt originally, he was, he you know, he spoke a little bit, he was quiet. Um and it's 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 hard to not look at him. He's a good looking guy, but he has UK eyeballs, and he had UK on his prosthetic legs. And then you read a story about to hear someone who, a W amputee who's blind, who re-enlisted in the Marines, that's a definition of a, of a, of a hero. You know, we, we use the words, oh, that guy's my hero, my hero. He's a hero. Did you hear what he said? He, he went back to Iraq to walk out with his brothers. I don't know many people, I don't know anyone in the world who would ever do that. Oh, listen, again, thank you for Matthew Bradford. Corporal, Marine, it's always funny when you listen to Cameron Mills' radio show. And I remember Cameron called him an ex-Marine one time, and Matt, Matt interrupted our audience. He's like, listen, you're a Marine for life. So he's an absolute honor. I've been wanting to interview him. Him and I have been going back and forth, texting for a couple months now, trying to set up a date to do the show. I was so mad. I was in Chicago two weekends ago, and he was there. The blind, uh, he was doing something with blind veterans or whatever. And we missed each other by one day. So, anyway, listen, everyone, thank you for listening. Again, Corporal Matthew Bradford, thank you again for your service, and thank you for calling my show. I'll talk to everybody soon. Bye.